0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Monday, March 2nd, 2020. I'm Keelan Brown. Secure private property rights, entrepreneurial activity, and a robust housing market ought to be red meat for Republicans. So, where are the Republican Yimbies, the people who want that dynamism and flexibility in land use? The Mercatus Center's Nolan Gray makes his case.
1: The average EMB is probably a young urban professional, somebody who probably had to move to a city for work. Uh, and regionally, you know, in the Bay Area, these people mostly work in tech. Um, or in uh, New York, these people might be in finance or tech or in a whole bunch of different fields. Uh, but they've been brought to cities by work uh, and they've been shocked to find at how unaffordable uh, rents and homes are. Um, and so they've been kind of galvanized by this issue. So, uh,
0: as, as far as their politics go, what are, what are they typically?
1: Yeah. So in, in general, EMBs, uh, tend to be Democrats, uh, would be my guess. Um, you know, most of them are, are probably fairly progressive on a uh, range of issues. It, 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 it's partly a function of, you know, these being the kind of people who are attracted to cities are generally inclined to those kinds of politics. Um, but, you know, partly a function of people who get interested in housing generally are more on the left. Why are they? I,
0: I understand if if you live in a city, you work in a city. There's a good chance that you're going to be uh, left of center. Um, but why aren't? Why are there so few Republican or right wingers who are YIMBYs? Yeah,
1: well, that's a good question. That's something that we we ask in the piece in, in City Journal because uh, at least on paper, this seems like a slam dunk issue for traditional kind of conservative values. Um, the housing shortage in most cities is perpetuated by over regulation, uh, policies like uh, zoning or um, excessive permitting review or excessive use of preservation or environmental regulations that are otherwise well meaning. Um, and so, a conservative perspective on this might be you know, we should expand property rights and allow people to do what they want with their property. If you own a single family home and you want to subdivide it and turn it into multiple apartment units to try to address the housing shortage and to collect you know, rents, um, you should be allowed to do it. Um, there's also an economic opportunity angle here in the sense that what you have right now is in many cities where housing is so scarce, rents are going up. And this is making it such that many working class and middle, middle class families can no longer afford to be in cities where the best jobs are and the highest incomes are. So they're having to do one of two things. They're having to move far outside of the city and, and have these hellish two hour commutes, uh, which is common in California. Uh, or they have to move to a region and basically take, you know, uh, a pay cut or or not have the kind of opportunities that they might have had uh, where they originally lived. Um, and so from an economic opportunity, from a property rights, from an economic freedom perspective, this should be a slam dunk for Republicans. My sense is that Republicans aren't turned on by this mostly because they represent areas where the residents already own homes. Uh, so this is not necessarily affecting them. And to the extent that it's affecting them at all, it could show up in rising home values because of this artificial scarcity perpetuated by regulation. And so it's to their benefit. Or they're just in rural areas where the nature of the problem is different. So, to the extent that housing affordability is an issue in many rural areas, it's often a problem of poverty, uh, which might not necessarily be best addressed by uh, a boom in new housing construction. Certain, certainly wouldn't help. But um, so I think it really comes down to the politics of it. For people like Bernie Sanders,
0: um who uh is as far as of as of this moment the leading candidate for president on the democratic side he wants to put a 25% tax on flipping houses essentially uh a, a 2% tax on homes that are vacant for some length of time or in, you know investment properties he really wants to tax uh people who are doing housing as uh, an investment
1: mm-hmm.
0: that see- doesn't see- that seems to go against uh you know what his city dwelling fans might prefer,
1: yeah, you know I think that that right now in in many cities you have really a mounting crisis um, and a lot of people are feeling it very directly and there's you know a question of how are we going to address this right now uh, and I think one kind of You know, track that people go on is well. Let's address some of the symptoms of the crisis. So you have proposals to try to cut back on uh, investment and properties, or you know, there's a sort of a myth of all these vacant units that are just sitting and they're owned by investors. And if only we could get them out of investors' hands and get them to renters and homeowners, that would help. You know, these things. They at best they might help on the margins. They might address symptoms. At worst, they you know they could actually make the crisis much worse. Um, I think. Why you have this uh, bipartisan interest growing uh, in the EMB cause is that it's trying to get, you know, to the to the core of the issue, which is that not enough houses are being built in the places where people most want to live. Who's getting this right uh, as uh, office holders in
0: either cities or states?
1: Well, the, the frontier right now is probably California. California. Um, State Senator uh, Scott Weiner is, of course, advancing a number of pieces of legislation to try to nudge cities or uh, place uh, certain conditions on what cities can and can't block, trying to get them to build more housing, uh, especially in job-rich areas, uh, in areas with high quality schools and areas with easy access to uh, transit. Uh, California also recently has passed a lot of legislation to allow what are called accessory dwelling units sometimes people call them ADUs. This might be like a granny flat or a mother-in-law unit, depending on where you are. Essentially, this allows people to turn their unused garages or attics or basements into an extra unit that they can then lease out. So California has been doing a lot of that work. Um, Elsewhere around the country, Oregon recently uh, preempted the power of cities to restrict large portions of their area to only single-family homes. So most American cities, Roughly 70 to 90% of the city, you can only have a single family home. You can't have a duplex or a fourplex. You can't have any apartments, anything of that nature. And so, of course, that imposes a pretty significant restraint on the amount of housing that can be built. So, Oregon essentially said that cities can no longer uh, institute that type of zoning. And they followed uh, Minneapolis in doing this. Minneapolis recently rewrote their comprehensive plan, which guides uh, how the city is going to grow over time. Uh, and essentially said, we're going to stop, we're going to r- remove these uh, sort of historically uh, inherited restrictions on the housing market and allow for more new small scale housing developments to, to spring up. How much of the problem uh, with respect to the housing
0: crisis in in uh, densely populated parts of the United States, how much of that is that even if you're a, a well-meaning politician who understands the uh, urban economics um that this any solution that you would impose would take years to really bear fruit
1: you know that that is a that is a big concern um there's been a lot of research coming out recently on the immediate effects of new units uh, and of course this is highly contested within the literature but something we we kind of are converging on is that as soon as these new units come online um you know people usually locals are moving into those units and then you have this chain of of apartments that clear up because of this. So, you know, the new units built uh, and then potentially an upper middle class or a wealthy family moves into that brand new unit, right? As you would expect, same with cars, brand new cars, it's generally wealthier people buying them. But then you have two things that happen. The first thing that happens is they clear up an existing unit. Somebody moves into that unit. That second party clears up an existing unit and this chain goes all the way down to the bottom of the market and it relieves pressure at all points of the market. Even if it's luxury housing that's only affordable uh to the wealthiest residents, you have this chain that 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 has this uh effect all throughout the market. The second is that that even you know you mentioned this concern of of over the course of decades. this is another element of it is that you know part of the problem is that we've stopped up the supply of new housing for too long you know to to again carry the analogy with uh, uh used car markets right if we were' only building. Uh, let's say a thousand cars uh, every year for the past twenty years. Any car that would be built in 2020, of course, would be quite expensive. Um, and so there are ways to deal with it immediately. But you know, if we're going to if we're going to start to solve this problem in the long term, we have to start building that housing today.
0: If I understand you correctly, th- there is some dispute about this, but the the impact of new housing units coming online can be a lot. More quickly felt than than I might suspect.
1: That's right. Yeah, I think people historically think of filtering, and they think, oh, okay, over time that brand new unit will, you know, uh, basically get worn down, become lower quality, and that way that specific unit will become cheaper. That's one way to think of filtering. But another way to think of it is, that in real time, the people who move into that unit are vacating an existing unit, and that happens all down the market, and that relieves pressure, that relieves the uh, amount of demand that's being placed on any given existing unit
0: if you were to advise a uh, a politician and perhaps you've done so already um uh, on getting this right what are some some key policies for cities and states that uh could garner some popular support and would not wreck the housing market
1: <laughs> you know i think there's a lot of low hanging fruit here uh because in many cases these ordinances are decades if not uh, a century old um, so you know one regulation that a lot of cities are critically reevaluating is the idea of minimum parking requirements. So this essentially says that for every uh, apartment or for every house you build or for every square foot of commercial space you build, you have to build so many off-street parking spaces. And that's good in theory, right? You want to make sure that everyone who drives to a place is not going to have to park on the street or something or another. in practice though, this actually raises housing costs in particular pretty substantially. Uh, the cost of a a parking space on a surface lot can start you at ten thousand. If this requires the developer to have to build an entire parking garage, this can increase the cost of every unit by, you know, as much as fifty thousand dollars. So this is a pretty substantial burden that's being placed um, in contexts where, in many cases, uh, renters might not even want to own a car. Uh, so really, this is an area where a lot of policymakers are saying, let's just shift it back to the market. Developers are in the best position to determine how much parking needs to be b- needs to needs to be built or not built. Um, and we really don't have a role to play in it. And so that's a coalition that's building, of course, with environmentalists who are concerned about you know the uh, negative externalities associated with driving, uh, affordable housing activists, uh, et cetera. And another bit of low hanging fruit is what I mentioned earlier, which is this institution of single family zoning. Uh, so essentially, as I mentioned, single family zoning says, you can only build a single family home on this lot. You can't build anything else. Now, this when you get rid of this, this doesn't mean that you can't still build a single family home. You absolutely can. All it's saying is that we're not going to block you if you want to build something like a duplex or a triplex. And so, as I mentioned, Minneapolis has already scrapped this. Uh, Oregon has eliminated it statewide. A few other states uh, and cities are looking at doing the same thing, uh, but there's really momentum building around these two very basic uh, reforms. I know a town that is near and dear to your heart is Lexington,
0: Kentucky. And uh, they are, you know, they're a college town. It's uh, dominated by younger people. There's a lot of industry there. Uh, The largest university in uh, Kentucky is there. And they've just made it more difficult to uh, build more housing inside uh, uh, the Lexington area.
1: Well... Lexington, you know, has a, has a great problem in the sense that a lot of people want to live in Lexington. It's a fantastic city, if I say so myself. Uh, a lot of people, of course, within Kentucky in particular are coming from distressed places in Appalachia or in the countryside, and they're finding opportunity in Lexington, which is growing and healthy, large healthcare. Sector, large education sector, you know, uh, a growing tech sector. So it's an exciting time for Lexington. The problem is that all this uh, growth and jobs and growth in income and growth in population is not being reflected in housing production. And so right now the city is in a position where they need to allow a lot more housing to be built. The problem is that the existing zoning is highly restrictive. It's very very hard to build. Anything within the city itself. And so what you get in the case of Lexington, which has an urban growth boundary is this constant fight over whether or not to expand the urban growth boundary. And we can talk about the merits of that. I don't think it's something that's going to happen in the near future. But rather than relitigate that every five or so years, the city really needs to sit down and have a frank conversation about how we make it easier to build more housing within Lexington, where you already have streets and infrastructure. When they went out and did their most recent comprehensive plan, and uh, I believe it was 2018, imagine Lexington, they went out and they surveyed you know, residents of the city, people who work in the city. They said, what, what is your vision for Lexington in the future? This is something that every city has to do every so many years. And a lot of people said, you know, yeah, we would like more housing in walkable areas. We would like more housing near jobs. We would like more housing near restaurants and amenities, things of that nature. Preferences are changing as they do over time. And there was this consensus, but what's been happening lately is when developers actually come with a proposal, things get much more complicated. Um, And the problem is, again, this zoning, which doesn't allow it to happen what's called as of right or without all of this excessive review. So you get these projects that get stuck in these two, three year uh, development review cycles. Uh, Inevitably, lawsuits come along. Um, You know, local NIMBYs will last minute try to apply historic preservation rules to a lot. And all of this is stopping up this new supply of what Lexington previously had reached a consensus on, which is new housing within the urban growth boundary.
0: So what is the the solution to a city? It seems like politicians in in the the case of Lexington, and I I assume this is a problem elsewhere, uh, anybody who wants to build more housing, in a sense, they're speaking for people who don't yet live in the city.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, it it goes back to Bastiat's point about the seen and the unseen, right? Um, the people who will show up at a meeting and and, you know, um sometimes be a little hysterical about the potential impacts of new housing are the seen. The unseen are the many hundreds or even thousands of people that might potentially live in that development project at some point. And so when we have a system where to get any development permits, you have to go through this long and arduous public review, of course, the scene is going to get a lot of attention and the unseen is going to have uh, uh, no uh, uh, advocate at all. And so the, the only real way to get out of this trap is to set rules that make it to where projects that we all agree are fine to happen and don't impose significant impacts on the rest of the community can happen without going through this long review. The only way you can do that is if you reform the zoning.
0: Nolan Gray is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.